when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Relations between the UK and the EU thawed this week as Britain tried to calm fears about having enough jabs and the bloc threatened a vaccine war. This is where we stand today. We're dealing with a pandemic and this is a not seeking to punish any countries. Um, We are the strongest supporters of global solidarity. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining the standoff between London and Brussels over COVID health vaccines, following the sort of rhetoric you heard at the top there from Stella Kyriakidis, the EU's health commissioner. Have tensions subsided? Where does this leave wider UK-EU ties? Political editor George Parker and Brussels Bureau Chief Sam Fleming will explain. And later, we'll be debating flags and patriotism. Is there such a thing as too many Union Jacks? Should every government building an official document have one? And what does it say about the state of British culture? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will explore with guest Salma Shah, a former special advisor to Conservative cabinet ministers. With plenty to discuss, let's crack on with the main topic of the week. The UK has had much success with its vaccine rollout programme, whereas the EU has struggled. The bloc has encountered troubles with both the delivery and supply of AstraZeneca jabs. Amid much speculation, it signed a subpar contract that's put it behind Britain and other nations. On Thursday, it reached a low point with member states trading blows over vaccine distribution. The situation is troubling for Brussels, especially following Brexit, raising the prospect of an export ban to boost its internal supply of jabs. With the possibility of the dispute spiralling out of control, Boris Johnson warned a parliamentary select committee on the dangers of vaccine nationalism. I would just um, uh, gently point out to anybody considering uh, a blockade or an interruption of of supply chains that uh, companies uh, may uh, look at such actions and, uh, and, and draw conclusions about uh, about whether or not it is sensible to make uh, to make future investments in uh, in countries where you know uh, arbitrary blockades are, are imposed. Sam Fleming, welcome back to the podcast. Let's just begin that overall characterization of the dispute. Let's just forget the UK for a moment. What's going on with the EU, and why is there this sense of struggle? Well, Sam, as you said, the EU is very, very disappointed and frustrated by the vaccine rollout that we've had since uh, the beginning of the year, the European Union is one of the great vaccine-producing powerhouses, many of them produced here in Belgium, where I'm based, and yet the bloc feels that its own citizens aren't seeing enough of these uh, vaccines. During the summit, the Commission produced figures showing that the bloc has exported 77 million doses of vaccine uh, since late last year around the world. That's almost as many as the 88 million that it's delivered to member states within the bloc itself. So it shows 
how much has been flowing out of the EU. And now one of the great uh, flashpoints here is that an awful lot of those have gone to the UK, some 21 million doses uh, since the beginning of December. So this is uh, obviously in the context of Brexit and all the other tensions there are going on, something that really is proving to be a major irritant, both within the bloc and also in terms of EU-UK relations. Then within the bloc also, there's concerns about the AstraZeneca dose because of uh, public uh, reluctance in some parts of the EU to take the jab. And then there are concerns about distribution of jabs between member states. Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian Chancellor has been uh, leading this vanguard that want to reshuffle the distribution of doses. He got short shrift from other member states. But really, this is a festering issue, which doesn't seem to be getting any better. Well, George Parker, this all stands in stark contrast to where the UK is at. We've now vaccinated over 28 million people. And Boris Johnson is trying to get his hand on as many AstraZeneca jabs as possible and getting them into as many arms as possible. So when you contrast the two things, you can see how the EU is getting annoyed by the UK's approach. And obviously, UK ministers are full of very upbeat rhetoric about how well it's going. Yes, I suppose if you step back a bit, the story of Brexit, the UK has always been a comparator with the EU. It's a big economy right on the doorstep of the EU. And until now, it's been a fairly negative comparator. People in the EU have been able to point at the UK going through its Brexit paroxysms, the new friction at the border, the economic damage, the political chaos, and said, you don't really want to go down that route. And I suppose the vaccination programme is the first time there's been a different sort of comparison where the EU's looked across the channel and seen a comparable big economy doing rather well. So it's changed the dynamics slightly. But you're right that in terms of the overall British vaccine programme, essentially the UK government took a huge bet in the spring of 2020, when there was a lot of discussion about how do you get out of this COVID crisis. Some people thought that a moonshot approach of vast mass national testing was the way out. Some people thought that therapeutics treatments may be the way out, and there was a lot of money put into that. And third on the British list was the idea of a vaccine. Well, vaccines back last spring were seen as a very long-range solution to the problem and not something that was likely to deliver in the current phase of the crisis, something that Emmanuel Macron recognised this week. But nevertheless, the British government invested a huge amount of money in a vaccine being developed at Oxford University, hooked Oxford up with AstraZeneca, put even more money into the development and trialling of the vaccine. And in the end, the bet paid off to a very large extent, to the point where, as you say, we've vaccinates over 28 million people, over half of the UK adult population. But that in itself has presented a problem for the British government, which is given the fact that we are vaccinating people with a 12-week interval, and given how many people have received doses already, that means we're going to need a vast number of extra doses to give people their second vaccine shot. And that's, I think, one of the underlying issues behind the tension that Sam was just describing there. Now, we've obviously got this issue of contracts as well, Sam. The FT spoke to Health Secretary Matt Hancock this week, and he said the difference was the UK had an exclusivity deal with AstraZeneca, whereas the EU had signed a Best Endeavours contract. And when you speak to ministers in Westminster, they're very much saying, well, the fact is we put early investment into the Oxford University jab. They're much more like partners, whereas the EU has a very different relationship. And both these contracts have been published in various forms. Is it fair to say that the EU's contract is maybe a little bit subpar to the UK's and that's what's allowed this situation to develop? I mean, you can obviously get into the legal analysis and presumably at some point the legal analysis may even get to the courts of these contracts and whether the EU contract is 
as watertight as the UK. But I don't actually think in the end that's going to be particularly determinative in terms of the course of this vaccine dispute. The fact is that if the EU did take legal action against AstraZeneca, by the time it did reach the courts and got resolved, the distribution would have been well in train and the fate of the vaccine campaign in the EU would already have been determined. The fact is that from the point of view of EU officials, they just think that AstraZeneca prioritises the UK over the EU whether that's down to a contractual clause or down to the early partnership between the UK government and Astra and Oxford, there's a different question. The point is that the EU sees the contract it has with AstraZeneca. It says four factories are named as producing to that contract, two of them in the UK and two of them in the EU. And to date, only one of those factories has actually been producing directly for the EU, which is the Belgian one. The Dutch factory has not been producing for the EU because it's not authorised yet to produce for the EU. So those doses are kind of on hold. Now, at some point, those will be delivered. But for the time being, the EU is relying on one Astra factory. The main point is the politics here and the relations between the company and the Commission and the UK government. Well, the politics, George, that Boris Johnson's been trying to do is to go around the EU capitals because that talk we heard earlier in the week of we might have to have an export ban, stop jabs from leaving the bloc, that could be very difficult for the UK because the UK's got to deliver about 12 million second doses and many of them Astra jabs and the same again in Maine. Obviously, talk of this ban has raised a lot of concerns in Westminster. The UK might not get the necessary doses there. So, The Prime Minister picked up the phone and we know had a lot of private phone calls with EU capitals to try and calm the tensions down. And we saw a joint statement on Wednesday, I think it was, that seemed to suggest that the two sides are starting to get into a better place on this instead of just lobbing threats at each other. Yeah, I think that's right. And Rula Halaf, the FT editor, and I interviewed Matt Hancock, as you say, and Hancock said that he was confident that there would be enough for second doses in the UK. And I said, well, have they been manufactured already? And he said, well, not yet. And that gives the game away a bit slightly, which is that they do need supplies, not just from the UK factories that Sam described making AstraZeneca, but also from the EU, including Pfizer jabs made in Belgium. So Boris Johnson realises that a vaccine war would be disastrous from everyone's point of view, but also from the point of view of people in the UK who've already had their first vaccination. So yes, he was on the phone doing what we don't always associate with Boris Johnson, which was he was doing some low-key diplomacy. He picked up the phone, I counted to at least six European union leaders. Normally Downing Street tells you when the conversations are held between the prime minister and the overseas leaders. On this occasion, they didn't and they claimed the talks were private. And speaking to EU officials, they said that they'd received a very positive feedback from the people who'd been on the phone to Boris Johnson saying that he was constructive, he was courteous, he wasn't joking, he didn't go beyond his brief and he was conciliatory. And I think that sort of played out on the eve of this week's European Council with that joint statement between the UK and the European Commission saying that they wanted to work together to have some sort of win-win situation. We don't really know exactly what that means in practice, but I think the contours of the deal, I don't know whether Sam would agree with this, seem fairly clear, which is, first of all, that any claim the UK may have had to AstraZeneca jabs being made in the Netherlands, the UK is going to have to forego most of those because Boris Johnson can see there's a huge political problem here in the European Union. Of course, the EU lays claim to those doses in in any event. But in exchange, I think Boris Johnson wants a guarantee that the EU won't block exports from that Pfizer Belgian factory to the UK, because that's absolutely essential. But nevertheless, that will still leave the UK running a little bit short, which is one of the reasons why Boris Johnson's fixer, Eddie Lister, as you reported this week, Seb, was in India, trying to get the Indian government to release AZ vaccines from the 
Serum Institute over there, that's run into problems as well. So it's going to be difficult. And one final thing I say is that there is a genuine concern on the UK side that if you end up with a tit-for-tat war on vaccines in the European Union, that will give the green light to the rest of the world to behave in exactly the same kind of way. And you know, there's sort of evidence of that taking place already in India. So for the world, I think the idea of Western European countries squabbling over vaccines would be a very bad sign. The appetite among EU leaders to block Pfizer exports to around the world, I would assess that as being pretty low, frankly. This would be a real crossing of the Rubicon. And you have to think about this from the point of view of member states that host production, including Belgium. The the fact that Pfizer has chosen the European Union as a destination to produce vaccines for the world is obviously a big achievement for the countries that host that production. To then go back on that and block those exports would have huge reputational ramifications for the EU as one of the vaccine powerhouses, send a very damaging signal, for example, to Canada, which is hugely reliant on European vaccines because the US isn't exporting vaccines even over the border to Canada. So while the Commission proposed to change its export rules to tighten them and demand reciprocity when it's exporting to countries which have their own vaccine production, That doesn't necessarily mean that they want to use that weapon to the fullest extent by blocking Pfizer exports. I think that would be enormously controversial within the European Union. Well, Sam, that brings me on to my last question, which is there's been a lot of talk among British politicians, this whole situation, even just the threat of an export ban has been damaging to the EU's reputation as a good place to do business, a good place to welcome inward investment. Do you think that that is right and that's maybe why it will ultimately pull back from any kind of draconian measures or is that over talked a bit? Yeah, I mean, certainly EU officials fall over themselves to avoid the wording export ban really sticks in the craw here. They don't see this as an export ban. They see it as a way of demanding, as I say, reciprocity. But it's clearly the case that it would be an enormous reputational risk to the EU if it started to interrupt global supply chains. On the other hand, these are national politicians who are under enormous pressure domestically over poor vaccine rollouts. And so they have to weigh competing objectives here. My suspicion is that they won't lock Pfizer exports because of the reputational risks. But as I said, they do want to have that threat in their back pocket if things really do break down. And George, what does this mean for UK-EU ties? Because this is one of the first major clashes we've had since Brexit actually happened at the end of January. And there's obviously been a bit of testy language back and forth, but there are still diplomatic channels there. And even if there's still a lot of bumps in terms of the Brexit trade deal itself, relations obviously could be in a much worse state following what's happened. They could be. I mean, there's no doubt that relations between the UK and the EU since January the 1st have been pretty disastrous, as many people predicted. I think the vaccine issue is one that's just so serious, it rises above politics and um, point scoring. And I think the low-key diplomacy pursued by Boris Johnson was a sign that this is really serious. I thought it was interesting, incidentally, that he dispatched Tim Barrow, his former ambassador to Brussels, a sort of veteran of the Foreign Office, to try and negotiate a deal with the EU rather than David Frost, the, <laughs> who's meant to be his minister for EU relations after Brexit, who's a bit more abrasive. And I think it's a sign that they do want to stabilise things. And look, there's been a breakdown in trust between the two sides since the beginning of January and indeed before the beginning of January. And I think actually, if you were to try and sort of see a bit of a silver lining to this quite dark cloud, it is that over the last week, a level of trust has been restored, I think, between uh, number 10 and some of the European capitals. And I think that's probably a 
positive thing. How long that's going to last, of course, is a totally different question. Sam and George, thank you very much. How important is the Union Jack? To some, it's just the flag of the United Kingdom. To others, it's far more symbolic of the country and feelings of patriotism. Some on the political right are seeking to insist that flags at every turn and feel that those on the left are embarrassed or even offended by what it stands for. This debate about national symbols speaks to a deeper meaning. The latest examination was sparked off by something much lighter though, a BBC interview this week with Cabinet Minister Robert Jenrick. We need to bring all that together into a proper strategy so that we can end rough sleeping over the course of this parliament and no one should have to live on the streets. Robert Jenrick, uh, thank you. I think your uh, flag is not up to standard size uh, government interview uh, <laughs> measurements. I think it's just a little bit small, but uh, that's your department, really. This off-the-cuff remark by a breakfast television presenter caused an outcry by some on the right. Robert Shrimsley, when you hear that clip there from Robert Jenrick, the breakfast presenters were not being too serious in what they were talking about there, but some did take it very seriously and took offence. Yeah, some chose to take it seriously. We have to draw a distinction here. I mean, I think what we're seeing is a degree of performative patriotism on behalf of the government. I don't think it started off as some great big row they had in mind. You know, This is a government that's delivered Brexit. It feels very strong about British identity and portraying Britain as a strong, confident country. And they're Conservatives, and the Conservative Party, as anyone who's ever gone to their conference knows, you know, they're keen on the Union Jack. So the fact they put the Union Jack in their office was not of itself, I think, a symbol of anything other than they're very happy to have it there. But anyone who's interviewed ministers or seen them recently has seen the flags growing like topsy. So um, the BBC presenter was having a, a slightly snide little dig about it, which possibly wasn't very wise, but it blew out from there. So I think it suddenly opened a door to those in the government who don't like the BBC to say, we've got a way to attack them here, which is they like to joke at people who think there's nothing wrong with putting a flag in their office. So the BBC slightly walked into this trap and the government was very happy to spring it. Well, Sam Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you on. What did you make of the exchange and this idea that Robert's saying that people chose to take offence to try and make a wider political point about the BBC and its attitude towards British culture? So, first of all, the flag has always been politicised by both left and right. I mean, I'm old enough to recall when Gordon Brown decided to announce that flags didn't have to be flown on a particular day and you could fly the Union Jack whenever you wanted. So this is not necessarily sort of a conservative right-wing thing. It does have wider uses across the political spectrum. But yes, the interview was awkward and it came across as a little bit rude. But I think it speaks to people's deeper values and the idea that if you're patriotic, that secretly other people mock you for it. And this is perhaps for some people coming across as evidence of that. And if it's seized on politically, I think that's just par for the course. I think that's always happened. This row about flags and the BBC had a second turn this week when the corporation's director, Tim Davey, appeared before MPs. He was speaking to Tory MP James Wilde, who quizzed him about Union Jacks on the BBC's annual report. In your annual report last year, 268 pages, do you know how many Union flags featured in any of the graphics um, in those glossy pages? Uh, of all the briefings that I got for this meeting, that was not one of them, I'm afraid. I think this is Wilde. Did you tell to take it yet? I, I had no idea. Was well, zero. Mm. Do you find that surprising? 
No, I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a strange metric. Robert, when you hear that there, obviously Tim Davy, the director general of the BBC, was somewhat stumped by that. And it's hard to know exactly what point James Wilde was making there, because the counterpoint that was made by many people is there was not a single union jack in the Conservatives' 2019 manifesto or other manner of official documents. And again, it seemed as if he was out to try and stir controversy and make a political point. Yeah, of course he was out to make a political point. This is the whole issue. This is people who now see an opportunity to attack the BBC as being unpatriotic, which some of them think anyway. They think it's got this strong liberal metropolitan instinct which slightly sneers at the flag. And as with a lot of political attacks, that's not completely untrue. And they think they've got the BBC on the defensive and they're pushing hard. And that's what you do in politics. When you have an advantage, you try and drive it further. But as I said, it comes down to this point about performative patriotism and a slightly American view of politics. I mean, Salman's right, of course, and others have done this before, but they were doing it for the same reasons, to show their own sense of patriotism. But what we are seeing is an attempt to make overt displays of the flag normal behaviour. And the truth is, in Britain for, you know, many centuries, the country was sufficiently nationally self-confident that it didn't need to go in for these displays and you didn't need to wave the flag to be a patriot. And I think that's the issue that's become more important in what was initially quite a trivial row is the sense to which we want the country to become one where people feel obliged to wave the flag rather than just be content to see the flag, confident in their own patriotism. It's now got to be performative. But I think, Robert, to some extent, everything is performative at the moment. It's slightly cliche to talk about social media and the rest of it and virtue signalling. And you're right, in some ways, it speaks to that trend as well. But There is a political logic to this. So if you follow on from the Brexit argument, the idea that, you know, plucky Britain is going to go out at it alone and and make our own destiny, the flag is an important symbol for people to rally around. I think a lot of people see the flag and uses of the flag as divisive, whereas I actually see it as quite a unifying thing. And we can unify a lot of people underneath that symbol in the same way that I would make a similar argument about the monarchy. But the political logic to this it's quite clear is that, you know, if you are a Conservative Party that's looking for red wall seats and looking to shore up your support in red wall seats and Labour isn't wrapping itself in the flag in the same way, it's a very quick way of saying to those people that we're on your side and we don't devalue the way that you think about British identity. So there is a really clear political logic to it. And I do think that there is a slight sneeriness in liberal metropolitan centres. And it's the dividing line that I think is politically obvious. I I think what you're saying, I completely agree with the political um, logic, but I think there's a contradiction in what you said, because you say this is a really good and effective political tactic for the Conservatives, which you're right. And then you also say, but the flag is something that everyone can unite behind. But if the flag becomes a symbol of the Conservative Party rather than a symbol of everybody, then it has the opposite effect and it ceases to be a unifying symbol of the country and it becomes a symbol of people with a particular political mindset. And that, I yeah. think, is a problem. Yeah, yeah. That, but that is about delivery. So let's compare where the Union Jack has been used really successfully politically And that is in the Blairite Cool Britannia era and Jerry Halliwell turning up in a mini dress that's the Union Jack. You know, that was slightly subversive. That was a slightly interesting use of the flag in order to sort of sell brand Britain and make it cool again. So I think there is a question mark over how you use it. And if you make it too fusty and too elite and, as you say, belonging to one particular group, it will have a negative effect. 
But there is a way, I think, to try and own the flag politically so that it's much wider and can bring a lot more people under that banner, literally. This is a massive trap for Labour and the Conservatives are very happy to leave this trap open and let lots and lots of people on the left, on the progressive side, walk into it. What you can't be if you want to be as serious about getting into power is a party that looks like it's embarrassed by the flag or embarrassed by its own nation, which is why Keir Starmer has stayed so carefully away from this row. Lots and lots of people in the Labour Party don't feel the same way. They don't like overt shows of patriotism, and therefore the Conservatives have got him in a double bind on this. Salma, you mentioned the new Labour era, and obviously, again, as you said, Tony Blair found a way to embrace patriotism and embrace those symbols, and I have no doubt that played a big part in the fact that he won three substantial majorities for the Labour Party. Keir Starmer is in a much more awkward position now because on the one hand, he's trying to appeal to those communities in England where people are much more willing to wear patriotism on their arms, whereas he's also got his more metropolitan-minded voters in the cities that maybe feel a bit more uncomfortable. So he's trying to speak to both sides here, but ultimately he's buying into the Tories' framing of the argument on this. There is another route for him to try, which is how you bring in those metropolitan groups to believe in patriotism in the same way that Tony Blair did. And I'm from an ethnic minority background. And I think that one of the most important things for people to feel like they're part of the mainstream does come down to participating in institutions and feeling that a symbol belongs to you. Now, I don't have a particular suggestion of how Keir Starmer could proceed, but actually reclaiming the flag against this culture war backdrop and making it that unifying symbol again is a route that he should try, which means that he doesn't have to have an either or approach. There are a couple points I want to pick up on that. First of all, I think we have to get away from the notion that what we call the metropolitan liberals are embarrassed by petrism, are embarrassed by their own country. They just don't believe in the same degree of visible signalling. I was talking to a very prominent Blairite for the column that I wrote, and I said, well, how would Tony Blair deal with this argument? How would he attempt to win this battle? And he said, it's very simple. You have to turn your opponent's strengths into its weaknesses. So you take the flag and you say the Conservatives may be showing the flag, but they're not standing up for it. So, for example, you say... You stand in front of the flag, but you cut the size of the army that is defending this country. You stand in front of the flag, but you're jeopardising the future of the union with your policies. You stand in front of the flag, but you won't pay our nurses properly. And the NHS is one of our great British assets. So I don't know if all those arguments work, but I think the point is you actually take the issue and you say, we are more patriotic because of the way we approach politics. That is the only way that Labour can win this argument. But it's a long haul and it does accept to some extent the Conservatives' framing of the issue. One thing I'd mention, by the way, this isn't just about flags. This is about a broader campaigning strategy that the Conservatives have, which is about maintaining the Brexit divide that worked for them. And actually, in a number of other policies too, particularly on crime and law and order, they're doing the same things. They are showing a particular set of policies and values, which their supporters want. And I'm not judging the policies, I'm simply making this as a political point, being tough on public order, tough on asylum, all these things. And they are pushing Labour again on the same issue, the same trap of you don't speak for ordinary voters. And they are playing on Labour's weaknesses and self-doubt because Labour worries that they might be right about this. So The flag symbol is of itself unimportant, but it speaks to a bigger issue in which the Conservatives are totally owning the political debate at the moment. Well, Sam, just to look at this post-Brexit referendum as well, because obviously lots of people who voted to leave the EU and then saw the events that happened when they saw lots of people in elite positions, either trying to campaign for a second referendum or campaign for Remain as well, that created a lot of anger 
And it creates a lot of dislocation as well between, I guess, what you might call elite and what you might call poor people within the country as well. And again, that only makes people more willing to buy into these national symbols and to talk up their nationalism. And on political divides, that's always going to help the right, particularly when Labour still has this issue with Brexit, when you've got people who want to rejoin the EU and Keir Starmer trying to move on from the fact he supports a second referendum, whereas the Tories are now fully the Brexit party. I think the problem is that we actually do need to move on from Brexit now. And I think the government and the Conservative Party are particularly going to try and move on from it because now that it's done, and obviously there are still issues that need to be resolved in terms of services agreements with the EU, that is not going to keep them going until 2024 in the next general election. So I feel that some of this is going to dissipate in the next sort of year to 18 months. So this is why we're sort of tipping into this new culture war. But the wider problem with this, particularly for Labour, is that underlying all of this is the fact that we cannot actually clearly articulate what British identity is. And therefore, we reach for things like the flag and whether you're patriotic enough, show that you're really patriotic and speak to values, particularly for people in the Red Bull seats. So... The political party that is actually able to articulate the clearest vision for Britain and British identity that encapsulates more than one particular electoral group, uh, the people that are going to succeed in 2024. And finally, Robert, do you think there's any prospect of any common ground on this? Because obviously it's something that people are whipping up because they've got an electoral advantage to do. But one of the things that I think a lot of people in Britain have prided themselves on is having a more quieter form of patriotism that's less in your face. Do you think we're going back to that? Is that a new era? Or do you think we're still going to have this quite angrily divide that will continue over the next couple of years? I think the problem with all political debate is it's the people who shout the loudest, the ones who get the most attention. And most ordinary people in British life are not interested in this. They're not going to be drawn into it. They don't care. They don't feel the need to start putting the flag in their living room. So I think the only way it will continue is if the Labour Party shows signs of walking into the trap and starting to rebel against the flag in any way, which I think there's absolutely no chance of the leadership doing, but there is a possibility of some of the rank and file doing. I think Keir Starmer will be very happy to see this row parked. So my hunch is that they will try to kill this row with silence and move on to bigger issues. I think the broader point in terms of the extent to whether the Conservatives will let it be killed is a different matter because Salma's right and there is a part of the Conservative strategy, which is we want to move on from Brexit. But on the other hand, the Brexit coalition worked for them. It got them into power with a very strong majority. And so to some extent, until they have other good news stories to tell, at the moment, the only good news story we've got is the vaccines. Until the economy is looking a bit stronger, until other things are working, the identity politics does work for the Conservative Party. And the one thing we know about all politics and all political parties is if you've got something that's working for you, you don't ditch it until you've got something else. Robert and Salma, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. Find us through all the usual channels, give us a thumbs up or leave us a positive review if you've enjoyed it. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh De La Mare. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.